0: Well, today we pick up in part two of the series called Trinity, like I mentioned before, and if you'd like to follow along with a rough outline of what we'll be going through, this is in your service folder, or it's in your program, and uh, maybe that'll help you follow along. Uh, for, for those of you who weren't here last week, I'll, I'll, kind of, I'll quickly summarize that in just a second, but before I do, I want to do some dancing for you today. <laughs> before I do, I just needed to, I wanted to tell you a quick story. I know I do this a lot. I know that I talk about my kids a lot, and then maybe some of you are getting sick of it, but hey, that's my place in life right now, and that's the pool I have to grab things out of. I have to brag about my kids real quick. It was either this last week or at the end of the previous week. I can't remember. My wife and I were upstairs, you know, talking or something, and, and we realized our kids are downstairs, and they've been quiet for several minutes. And so as a parent, you know, it's one of two things. Either they're getting into big trouble, or... You should stay away because, you know, they're playing nicely. And so we don't know which one it is. So you, you got to go down there and investigate. I go down there, you know, quietly going down the stairs and sort of peek in the room. And I saw something that completely blew my mind. So my three kids, three, five, and seven, they were around the table in the far corner in, in a room. And they had, they'd, they had gone into our game closet and they picked out one of the board games from the closet. And they had set it up on a table. I know some of you maybe haven't played this before. This is a game called Risk, and the way the game is played, you got this map of the world. There's about 50 countries or so, 50 territories, you know, like the United States or Northwest Territories, Irkutsk, Kamchatka, you know, all sorts of fun names in in Asia, too. Um, The goal of the game is to get every country to take over the world. And uh, so they had set up this game on the table, and... My, my seven year old, Jackie, she, she, she sees me at the door, and so I knew my cover was blown. I'm like, oh, man. And she says, Dad, would you teach us to play this game? And mind you, if, if you've never played the game, so it's, it's really complicated, you've the, you got these armies that you can put on your territories, and then you get um, these cards that if you get enough of them, you can turn them in for extra armies, and then you have to count out if you have a certain continent, you get even more armies, and then you've got to roll against your opponent. There's red dice and white dice, and then there's all sorts of elements to this. And so as a parent, when a seven-year-old says, Dad, can you teach us to play this, what does Dad say? It'll be supper time soon. You know, I don't think we have time. It's too hard. Let's not get into that. You know, there's all sorts of excuses running through my mind. And I don't know if this was a, a, an unusual moment in parental patience or if this was just me targeting an, an easy game, someone I could actually beat. I said, You know what, Jackie? I'll teach you to play. <laughs> And so we sat down, it was mostly me and her, but the other two are watching too. And I I told her, this is how the game works, this is how you set it up. And and I knew going into it, she wouldn't understand everything. But I knew I could teach her enough so that she would know what's going on and so that she could learn from it, she could grow from it. And one day maybe she'll be a risk champion and get a scholarship out of it, I don't know. Um, I actually took a picture of him in the room. Dean, did I put a picture of that in there? No, I didn't because the room was a mess. I didn't want to embarrass myself. But I took a picture of these three kids playing, playing, playing Risk with me. It was great. And it got me to thinking, the way that I addressed my kids playing Risk is probably similar to the way God comes to me to explain who he is. Sometimes we maybe say, God, I just want to know who you are. Or we open the Bible thinking, I'm just going to figure God out. And in a sense, you're sitting down like a seven-year-old saying, God, please teach me who you are. And what does God do? Uh, That's too complicated. Uh, We don't have enough time. The cool thing is that God has this divine patience and this divine love to say, you know what, you're not going to get it. You're not going to understand me completely. But I will tell you what you need to know in order to grow. That's a great phrase, isn't it? In fact, it's our, it's our series theme. Uh, we want to share what we know in order to grow. This, this, it's a great, falls off the lips easily. That's Ben's, that's Ben's, by the way. He came up with that. It's deep. <laughs> in this series, we're talking about Father, Son, and Spirit. We recognize this is a deep topic, and there's all sorts of ways we can take this. The thing is, we don't want to unearth some hidden meaning or some deep truth about God you've never heard before. That's not the point. We simply want to dwell on what we know in order to grow. And here's one observation, one quick observation from this week to last week as, as we talk about God the Father and God the Son. God the Father, as, as He was described for us last week, and as you look at Him in the Bible, God the Father is this person that all of us want as a God. If you sat down to design your own God, all the things we talked about last week are things that you would plug in. Let's see, I want a God who created me and who knows me absolutely i want a god who protects me and takes care of me absolutely i want a god who's always there absolutely all the things we talked about with god the father are things that yeah that's what we need from our god in in this week as we get into part two as we talk about the son there's going to be some things that we never would have dreamed of and quite frankly there's some things that are very awkward and unusual and unique when we look into who the son is and so here's what I hope to accomplish I'm going to engage the skeptic in me and I'm going to engage the skeptic in you as we look at a very detailed section here about who Jesus is and what he does and there's going to be a part of you that says okay I kind of get the point but this is just weird Okay, so that's, that's the first step. And then after we do that, what I hope to do is I want to share with you why crazy Christians like me actually believe in the stuff we're going to talk about today. Uh, it's not just this, hey, Jesus showed up and, and claimed something, but it's based a lot on what he did and something specific towards the end of his life. Now, as we get into this, you, you might uh, think to yourself, well, how do we summarize the Son of God in a phrase? And I'm going to do this knowing that you might not agree with me. I'm going to try to summarize the sun in one phrase. And the reason I'm doing this now is because I want you to test it throughout this message and to see, does this stand up? Does this stand? And and if you don't like this phrase, that's fine. This is something I came up with. Maybe you can come up with a better phrase, and you can complain about that in your growth group if you're meeting this week. That's one of the questions on there. But here's my summary of getting to the heart of who the sun is. The sun is the faithful representation and the full embodiment of who god is he faithfully represents god in every way and he is the full embodiment of everything that god is and we'll test this throughout the message but first of all i want to really stick down and stick in our minds why this is such a big message such a big statement and and it starts off with this a question for you how careful are you with your image How careful are you with your image? It goes beyond just how you comb your hair, that's part of it. It goes beyond how you dress yourself, that's part of it. Your image goes to everything you say, everything you do, and everything you post. Some of us need to be reminded about that sometimes. Your image is based on everything you post. And so what if I had up here in front of me today, what if I had my laptop opened up to Facebook.com? And there's that little place on the top right where you put your username and you put your password, and what if I had you come up here and enter that information for me, and you left that laptop with me for one day? Is there anybody in here from my growth group, by the way? Okay. Would you trust me for one day with access to your Facebook account? Let me ask Matt. No, okay. Let me ask Matt. Would you trust me, Matt? Not a chance. Not a chance. I could destroy you in one day. I could destroy you in one hour. What, what's so interesting about the things we say and the things we post, it only takes one thing, one thing we say to make everything go, go bad or everything go wrong. <laughs> I'll hack you. you. You don't even have Facebook, do you? Oh, you do? Yeah. Are we friends? <laughs> 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 we we'll have to look into that. <laughs> We're a tight growth group, if you haven't noticed. Yeah. You're never on there, though, right? No, okay. So it's not my fault. So you're protective of your image. Here's one thing I really learned this week. Something that stood out in one of the news articles. Do you know how careful the Trump is with his image, Donald Trump? This isn't a comment about his hair. The first service all gotten. Oh, his hair? No, it's not his hair. The the, Donald Trump is so careful with his image. I just read this this week. He bought up over three thousand website names so that people couldn't use the names against him. For example, if you don't like Donald Trump and you want to buy a website called DonaldTrumpIsADork.com, if you try to buy it, you'll see somebody else has already taken it. Guess who? Donald Trump. 3,000 website names. He's gobbled up. He's accumulated them all so that nobody can go in and publicly shame his image with one of these website names. And people are saying, wow, that's extreme. Other people are saying, That's smart. He's so careful, so concerned with his image that he did that. Now, the other question is, the next way to take this is, how careful is God with his image? How careful is God with his image? In the Old Testament, one of the first commandments he gave to his people is, look, you're not going to have any other gods, but more than that, you shall have no graven images of any god. You shall have no statues of any god, including me. God was very specific, no physical representations of me the question is why well because God was concerned with his image no physical thing that mankind could make could do justice to the image of God it can only take away and so he said no images no idols nothing not even of me And in fact, when you look at the Old Testament, especially, whenever God appeared to someone in physical form, sometimes he was undercover in human form and he looked like a person, but when he he appeared in his true form, whether he's talking to Moses or whether he's appearing to the Israelites on top of Mount Sinai, what form does he always take? Fire. Or its counterpart, smoke. Smoke. He only appears as fire and smoke. Why? Because you can't make an idol that looks like fire. You can't make an idol of smoke. He chose some some objects and some things that aren't tangible to send a a message. He is very careful about his image. Uh, Phil in number two, God is very concerned and very protecting of his image. And therefore, those who love God will also want to protect his image. And you know what? That's what got Jesus killed. When Jesus showed up, he said, I am the Son of God. I am the physical representative, the faithful representation of I am. And the people who love God said, you can't do that. God has no image. And so the Jews who very much thought they loved God ended up putting God's Son to death. But this shows you the, the, the importance of saying this, that Jesus, the Son, is the faithful representation and the full embodiment of God. That's saying a lot. In fact, I acknowledge it's a, it's a big leap for a lot of us to take. Uh, it's, for some people, it's a big leap just to say Jesus was a historical figure, an actual uh, living person. That's a big leap. And then it's, it's a really big leap to say He is actually the Son of God with everything God is contained in his body that's saying a lot that's a big leap and 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 part of you says well we're we're too scientific to believe that anymore we're too smart we're too sophisticated you know people in the first century they just followed along with whatever they were told but we're smarter today but what if i told you that when people looked at jesus back then in the first century what if i told you that they were every bit as concerned as we are today what if they were sophisticated and smart and scientific, and when they looked at Jesus claiming to be the rightful representative of God and the full embodiment of all that God is, what if they looked at that skeptically and couldn't quite come to terms with it? What actually happened one day, this is kind of my version of the way it went down, the Apostle Paul, who was one of the, the greatest Christian missionaries in the biggest believers in jesus in the first century he was in prison in rome and one day some people came to him and they said hey paul guess what again this is my version hey paul guess what and paul says what we got some bad news paul there's there's this uh there's this church this group of christians out in the city of colossi and they are just having this horrible time they, they can't just come to terms with Jesus being the son of God and, and they're, they're really drifting away from it. And, and Paul, we don't know what to tell them. We don't know what to do. We can't figure this thing out. So Paul says, hold on, hold on. I'm going to write something down that will help them straighten it out. Wouldn't that be cool if we had Paul's letter in the first century where he addressed people who were skeptical about Jesus being the son of God? It would be cool. If you open your Bible to a book called Colossians, that's where you see it. And what we're going to see here, we're going to turn to just a few of the verses. What we're going to see in the book of Colossians, this is a section that's very highly poetic. In other words, it's confusing. <laughs> Poetry is confusing. But at the same time, it's deep. It's this is deep literature, and, and Paul's trying to send a message. And it can be hard to follow, it can be hard to track. So we're going to simplify it into two things we need to know. Number one, this section nails down the Son's identity with the Trinity. The Son's relationship with the Father, the Son's relationship with the Spirit. It nails down that relationship. And the other thing it nails down is the Son's relationship and impact on you. So as long as we can get those two things nailed down, we'll figure it out. In fact, these are two things that are on your sermon notes sheet. It's going to be the next two things we talk about. So Colossians 1 verse 15, it starts out this way. It says, the Son is the image of the invisible God. This is defining the relationship that he has with the Trinity. And Ben did this great thing last week. He had this thing where he talked about something that was just really crazy and hard to understand. Do you remember what he did? I was like, I just want to do that right now. So you guys can't do it right now, but I can. I finally get to do it. It's just mind-blowing when you look at the things here. So how can something invisible have an image? Here's the thing. Up until the time the sun came, God was completely invisible. We had no way to see Him, no way to feel Him, no way to know what the full embodiment of Him would look like. But with the sun, we see the image of God. This shows us that the sun... As we said before, he is the faithful representation of the invisible God. And and I I get it, I get it, I get it. When you're looking outside in into Christianity, that sounds ridiculous. How can Jesus of Nazareth be called the image of the invisible God? And I'll share with you why I believe it in just a second. Uh, First of all, there's one other thing we need to tackle. It's this next phrase which helps to define and nail down his relationship to you and to this creation. So with regard to God, he is the image. With regard to you and with regard to creation, he is the firstborn. And that word firstborn is one that's been uh, completely misunderstood for so long and even some non-Christian religions, they take this a completely different way. And and I'll, I'll acknowledge at first it seems weird. If he's the firstborn, then what do you ask? You ask who is the Secondborn. who's the thirdborn? how many sons of god are there by the way are there other sons we don't know about and suddenly we see this word firstborn it just it just blows our mind but here's the thing about the word firstborn when you look at greek literature and the jewish culture the word firstborn is never used to denote order of birth necessarily in other words the firstborn might be the third child you're like why why would they put it that way then here's in modern terms here what it here's what it means to be the firstborn in today's terms is to be the financial power of attorney it's to be the the heir of an estate it's to be the one who designates what happens to an estate after after mom and dad are gone so that the firstborn is simply a, a symbol or a title of prestige and a title of power it doesn't necessarily talk about the order of birth. In fact, some people, as you look at this word used, it's used of single, ch- or single, child, single children uh, where there are no siblings. So firstborn simply designates power and authority. And you might be saying, well, Matt, you're just fitting this word into, into a Trinitarian theology and you're just making it mean what you want it to mean. And I'll admit it. If you're just looking at this one phrase, then yeah, you could say, I'm just twisting this to mean what I want it to mean. But... When you look at it in the context of everything that Paul says here, it's very clear that he's, and we're going to summarize this, I know this is a lot, we're just going to summarize it with this. This defines his relationship with you. He's the firstborn, which means he's the power of attorney, he has control, he has power. And don't take my word for it, let's quickly run through the rest of the section to see these two thoughts put into play. For by him all things were created. Who can create things? Only God. Jesus is the image of the invisible God who created all things. All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, uh, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. And I don't want to pick apart too many phrases because this is simply poetry where Paul is making a point. He is the image of the invisible God. And Jesus is, is uh, in a position of power and authority over all creation. He asks the question who's better than him? Who's more superior than him? Nobody. One more phrase here. This is where things start to click, and he applies this to you. Now, okay, so what does the son do with all of his power? Here's what he does he is the head of the body, the church. I think I brought this up before, that word church, it's kind of almost an unfortunate translation that we, we see church as a building or a place. Um, whenever you see church in the New Testament, you can, not with a pen or anything, but with your mind, kind of scribble it out and put in the word me. He's the head of the body. He's the head of me. He's the head of his people. And, and this kind of gets to the heart of the reason why Jesus came here to begin with. And the reason why God sent him here as, his, as, as a physical and faithful representation to help, to guide, to use his power for the good of others. And, and we'll finish off here with another uh, cool phrase. He's the beginning. And again, here's the word firstborn. He's the firstborn from among the dead so that in him he might have the supremacy. And I'm going to pause right there. <clears throat> We've really dived into... Jesus being the image of the invisible God. Jesus is in power and control over all things. Now I'm going to step back and I'm going to say, why do crazy Christians like me believe that? And Paul gets at it right here. The reason I believe that is because Jesus predicted and carried off his own resurrection. And and not just in a... Fairy tale kind of way, reading a myth or reading a legend. When you look at the resurrection details in the context of the Bible and even in secular history, you can see something amazing happen to transform the lives of Jesus' disciples. This is so important. This is one of our discussions we have in Starting Point. We spend a whole day on this. The resurrection is what sets the standard and basis for the reason people believe this. If Jesus Christ could predict and pull off his own resurrection, I believe he is who he says he is, even if I can't understand it. And then uh, Paul finishes off the the section here with this uh, next phrase. Here's the cool part. God was pleased by this. God was pleased that the the fullness of God dwelled in the Son. And here's why I'll I'll go back to Matt. Matt. Matt was very hesitant to give me his login information. Rightfully so. The one thing... One thing can change your image. When God the Father and God the Son looked at their fullness being poured into Jesus and as they watched him living his life every day for 30 years, there's one conclusion they came to. This is good. What he's doing is he is being a faithful representation of everything that God is. And part of that meant he's the full embodiment of everything God is. Which means he was full of love for you and no greater place do you see that demonstrated than in the last line here through himself uh, through the son to reconcile to himself all things whether things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross One thing I didn't tell you about setting up this risk board with my kids is that as we got playing, I was like, this isn't even going to be fun. They're going to be frustrated. I'm going to win. I'm just going to destroy them. So what I did is I stopped putting my, my armies on the board like I should have. I started holding myself back. And instead, I started putting more of their stuff on the board just to you know, make them win so that they would keep playing so I can beat them another day. <laughs> when you look at what Jesus did, he didn't just dumb himself down when he came to this earth. He was still the full embodiment of God. But instead of using all that for himself, he took that and he placed it on your side for you. He took his life and he laid it down for you. He took his blood, he shed it for you so that the punishment for sins could be placed on him. This is the greatest mystery that you see in the Christian faith from front to back. That God would come to this earth And punish himself for what you did yet that's the full embodiment of who God is the God of love and the God of mercy in fact as as you look at this let's say you're getting to that point where you say okay I believe that Jesus is the faithful image of God that can still be a scary thing because then you got to tell yourself I'm not the faithful image of God Here's what I'll simply summarize it with our last fill in here. Oh, sorry, third fill in here. The Son revealed God's identity, and He didn't stop there. He went on to redeem your identity, to redeem yours. God created you to be in His image; you lost it. Jesus restored it. He made you what you were not. So that even as you sit here today, you you say, yeah, I still got some questions. Yeah, I'm still like a seventh grader trying to figure out a game. I don't know the whole thing. I never will. I'll never understand Father, Son, and Spirit. But I know enough. I get it. I know what he did, and I know how he played this game for me. Now, I want to conclude things. I was thinking, well, how does this really impact and drive our life? And, And so much of this is just what we get every week here at Bethlehem. Because of who Jesus is, this drives our life, knowing that our image has been redeemed. We push on to give him glory and thanks in everything that we do. So this is the driving factor for everything we teach. But I got to thinking, how does this specifically apply to you and apply to me today? And as I did a search, as I looked at the image of God and, and the image of Jesus, there's this passage in 2 Corinthians that came up. Again, Paul was writing in the first century to this group of Christians. And he had this, this phrase that really stuck out. And, and we're not going to explain all of it. it it's, some of this is stuff we're going to touch on next week. But this is a phrase that really drives home what this means for you. This is what he says. We, believers in Christ, we, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, we are being transformed into His likeness. Another way to translate that, we are being transformed into His image. The image that God was so careful of and so protective of, the image that Jesus faithfully showed people is now an image that God is transforming you to become a part of. You are the image of God in this world. And this isn't an automatic thing or an immediate thing. He says this is going to be an ever-increasing glory, um, an ever-increasing thing that God works in your life. And you see who does it? This is our segue to next week. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. We'll we'll talk more about that next week. For now, think about this. What's the transforming thing happening in your life right now? What's the image that God is trying to change you into? And if if you're in a growth group, you can talk about that a little bit more and you can discuss what are some obstacles that are keeping you from being transformed. But but just take this home with you today. You are being transformed. A last fill in here. You are being transformed into the image of God's Son that's a privilege. Maybe that's a scary thing. It's it's an awesome thing to think about how he does that for us and through us. But consider that. The image that God so much protected, he is transforming you to become a part of. Let's pray. Dear Almighty God, I thank you that even though you are so great and so beyond our understanding, you invested in us You came down to our level to to explain yourself to us, to describe yourself to us, not that we would fully understand it, but that we would know enough to know what you did for us. We marvel that the Son, who is so beyond us, who is your image, uh, who is full of, of everything that is God, he emptied himself of that to die in our place. I thank you. I marvel over that every single day of my life And, and I pray that for the people in this room that truth would drive home that you would send your spirit into all of our hearts to be able to accept that truth to trust in you for that and to receive the joy and hope that flow out of it. So help all of us as we look forward to become more and more like you to put you first in our lives not so that we can earn something or gain something Jesus has already done that but more so that we can give glory to you in all that we do. Bless us all in Jesus' name as we join in the prayer that he taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil.